0: You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is where we will be today. If you are new with us, uh, I want you to know how grateful I am that uh, you've chosen to worship with us today. My name's Ethan. I get the great privilege of being the pastor here at Central. And uh, Casey mentioned Discover Central just a minute ago. I, I walked in there before I, I came in here, and uh, that room right now, uh, even in the middle of July when people are traveling, is full of people just like you uh, who have been checking Central out and are taking their next step, and so. Uh, when Discover Central rolls back around at the beginning of August. I hope that you'll uh, you'll join in and you'll find out uh, what makes us tick at Central. I like to tell people it's not a secret, it's Jesus, right? That's that's why we're here. So uh, Exodus chapter 20 uh, is where we're going to be. Uh, several weeks ago, we started a series uh, and we're continuing on called Words from the Fire, and we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And so we're taking each commandment and just seeing what would the Lord say to us today, and then uh, also asking how does this commandment, how does what the Lord says here, uh, how does it point me forward? How does it push me uh, to Jesus? Because that is the purpose of the law, uh, as Paul tells us. Uh, Now, I have four kids, and uh, one of the things I've learned over the years of parenting is that there is no one more creative than a five-year-old little boy. Uh, No one smarter than a five-year-old little boy, no one more creative. Uh, My uh, my kids, it seems like there's always a birthday or a holiday or just because it's Tuesday, and so grandparents are, calling us, texting us, saying, hey, uh, I'm going to buy the kids something. What do they want? It's never what do they need, right? It's what do they want? And so we tell them uh, you can buy them whatever it is as long as it's not a toy, right? They don't need any more toys. And so uh, because uh, grandparents love them and they love us, uh, they buy them pajamas or something like that and a toy, Right. Uh, uh, but one of the things uh, that, that I've learned is that it doesn't matter what kind of gift you give to a little boy or a little girl, uh, that gift can and will be used as a weapon at some point. Uh, so not long ago, uh, my boys had been given pajamas and we tell them to take them upstairs to their room, and we're assuming, right, like, this is safe. It's just Spider-Man pajamas, and uh, we hear some tussling, and I walk upstairs, and the pajamas have been turned into nunchucks, right? And they are hitting each other, beating each other up. Uh, their two-year-old sister's taking cars and throwing them at, at them uh, just because you get wrapped up, and I'm throwing cars at them. Right? It was a fun, uh, fun time, right? But, but you maybe you've been there, right? You've been there where uh, you give a gift as one thing and whether it be a little kid or someone else, they use it for the completely wrong purpose or for a completely different purpose. But here's what I know, that it's not just little boys and little girls that do that. Actually, you and I do that as well. That we take gifts that are given to us by our God and we use them in ways that they were never intended to be used. In fact, what we do is we take good gifts from God and we turn them into bad gods. We take good gifts and we turn them into bad gods. We turn them into little idols. This is why the Ten Commandments begin with, shall have no other gods before me and don't make any idols. Because the Lord knew that Israel and us today, our hearts are prone to making idols to taking God's good gifts and worshiping them rather than him. And so this morning, as we look at Exodus 20, 14, at this seventh commandment, we're going to see this truth, that this is really the heart behind the commandment, that we turn good gifts into bad gods. So stand with me as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in Exodus chapter 20. Um, Let's read this together. Uh, Exodus 20 verse 14 says you shall not commit adultery this is God's word you can be seated (laughs) Uh, you know I last week I I can preach on you shall not murder I can do anything then I read the next verse and I was like oh man I gotta stop saying things like that uh you shall not commit adultery amen and amen would you uh pray for God's blessing on our time together with me Father, we understand this morning that we are here for holy work. Father, we understand this morning that anytime we come together to worship you and to study your word, this is serious. And Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Father, just as David said in the Psalms that that your law would revive our souls. And Father, I pray this morning as we study this command that we would see you and that we would see Jesus. So Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We. We're good at turning good gifts into bad gods. And so we have this command, you shall not commit adultery. And rather than taking and trying to pull this one verse apart and understand all of these things, really I think the best way for us to understand uh, what it means to not commit adultery is actually to understand the gifts that this command is seeking to protect or the gifts that this command is even seeking to give. And so first, we need to understand God's gift of marriage, God's gift of marriage. Marriage is a good gift unlike any other gift. But when we misunderstand it or when we misuse it or we practice it poorly, marriage becomes a good gift that is turned into a bad God. And this seventh commandment, this you shall not commit adultery, it's a commandment given to protect marriage. Throughout scripture, there's a a high value placed on marriage as a a covenant relationship. And the reason that this high value is placed on marriage is because of that word covenant. You, You can't understand the scriptures without understanding that word covenant. In fact, if you wanna understand how is the Bible put together, the Bible isn't put together with 66 books. The Bible is put together with covenants. That God has progressively revealed himself through scripture, through these covenants. And he, he makes covenant with individuals. He makes a covenant with people. And the marriage covenant is to be a picture of God's relationship with his people. So when God's people love and follow him, then we're like a bride loving and following her husband. But when God's people sin and all sin is against God, then we're breaking that covenant. John Frame, he says this, he says all sin is spiritual adultery. All sin is spiritual adultery. It's it's violating the covenant that God has made with us and that we have made with him. So what is adultery? But we could define adultery like this. Adultery is marital infidelity that breaks the covenant bond of marriage. It's marital infidelity that breaks the covenant bond of marriage. But understand this. You don't have to be married to commit adultery. Any, Any kind of intimacy that should be reserved for a husband or a wife that is practiced outside of covenant marriage is adultery. And scripture takes this idea of adultery very seriously. But understand, that the reason scripture takes this seriously is because God takes this seriously. I think John Frame is helpful here again. He says, adultery is covenant treason. So, so why is adultery such a big deal? Listen to Frame. He says, one who would cheat on his spouse would also cheat on his God. Adultery is serious business. It it breaks a covenant. And in breaking that most important covenant, what it does is it makes other covenants easier to break. It makes other commitments easier to walk away from. So to understand the seriousness of adultery, we've got to understand that marriage is a gift from God. So we're going to This morning, we're going to jump around to a few different places, but first, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we've got on the screen for you. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so there in Genesis 2, we get this first picture of what God had designed marriage to be. That God had designed marriage to be between a a man and a woman. I had a a professor one time, he said, can you imagine what it was like when Adam saw Eve for the first time? He said, "There's there's an ancient Hebrew word that captures what Adam probably said, and it's, wow, right? Like, uh, this is different. But we see, we see a little bit more of God's design for marriage in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we read this, and, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth see, marriage, from the beginning has always been a relationship between one man and one woman for life to bring God glory. This is why God called Adam and Eve in Genesis: 128 to be, to be fruitful and multiply. If we were to keep reading into the prophets, we would read, or the prophets tell us that God's original design for Adam and Eve is that they would multiply, and that as they multiplied, that the Garden of Eden would spread so that God's glory covered the dry land the way the water covers the sea, right? And that's the same is true today. The, the reason that the Lord entrusts you, mom and dad, with kids it is so that his glory would continue to go. Right, So that his glory would continue to be seen, his glory would continue to increase around the world and across the globe. See, from the beginning, marriage has been a relationship between a man and a woman for life to bring God glory. So understand this, that anything other than that is by definition not marriage. See, you and I cannot redefine what we did not create God created marriage, and God has something to say about marriage. In fact, what we see here in Genesis 1 and 2 is that the first institution that God gave to man was marriage, right? It was the family, and so we should take this seriously, but This design for marriage doesn't end in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God's design for marriage flows right into God's purpose for marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the, the two shall become one flesh. Now get this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church see in god 's design for marriage, we could define god 's design for marriage uh, with the word uh, complement there's a complementarity that comes in marriage that, that men and women, uh, husbands and wives, that they complement one another, right that they are not the same, they are different in almost. Every way, and in that difference, that difference is by design because those two complement one another, like salt and pepper, right? That, that husbands and wives that they are designed to bring complement to one another. Now, understand, when we say complement to one another. We're not saying that the husband is always supposed to tell the wife she's pretty, and the wife's supposed to say she's hus- she's he's handsome, right? That's not the the way we're using that. Complementing is that they they work together. That they go together. And what Ephesians says is that in that complementarity, in that unity through difference, that something of the mystery of the gospel is revealed. Something of the mystery of God's glory and the way that he knows his people and loves his people and provides for his people. See, marriage is not ultimately about me and you. Marriage is first and foremost about God. Marriage is first and foremost a picture of the gospel. This is why healthy marriages matter. This is why healthy families matter. And this is also why adultery is dangerous. Not only because it violates God's design, but it corrupts the picture of the gospel that God has given to us. So understand that marriage is nothing less than a covenant. A covenant is more than a contract. It's more than a transaction. It's a commitment. And yet one of the ways that our culture has misunderstood this is we have approached marriage as a contract. We've approached marriage as a transaction. We approach marriage as what can you do for me? What can I get out of this? But there's another way that we can misunderstand marriage, and that's whenever we make marriage ultimate. And it's not sure that we make marriage ultimate, but it's we make our husbands or our wives ultimate. That we make them who are gifts to us from God, we turn that gift into a bad God. Right, And so we ask our spouse, we ask our, our wives, or we ask our uh, husbands to satisfy us in ways that only Jesus can. We ask them to carry a load that they were never intended to carry. We ask them to, to hold what they were never intended to hold. And whenever we do that, our marriages inevitably go bad. That's where problems arise from. And so As we understand God's gift of marriage, we've got to understand it rightly so that we don't turn it into a little God or so that we don't turn it into something that was never intended to be. And and so we've got to understand God's good gift of marriage, but next we see this, we've got to understand God's gift of intimacy. Uh, Understand God's gift of intimacy. Webster's defines intimacy as something of a personal or private nature. It lists synonyms as closeness or nearness. If you understand this, that that you and I, we were made for intimacy. We were made for intimacy with our God. We were made to be known by and loved by our God. But we were made for intimacy with others because in that intimacy, we learn what it means to be known and loved by God we were made to know and experience intimacy and that intimacy really is a gift from God, but whenever we misunderstand it or we practice it incorrectly, God's gift turns bad. Now in scripture, there's, there's two types of intimacy that when misused, violate the seventh commandment because it violates the, the unique covenant bond that marriage is to be. And so there's, there's two types of intimacy, at least two, there might be more, but at least two that we see in scripture. The first one is this is physical intimacy physical intimacy. Uh, Song of Solomon is one of uh, the most powerful books in Scripture. Now, I had to be 25 before I could read it, uh, but uh, it is a wonderful book that highlights and celebrates the gift that marriage is. So we could look at all different parts of uh, the Song of Solomon. Uh, I love to quote Song of Solomon to Anna, especially on Valentine's Day, and say, Your hair is like a herd of goats running down the hillside, you know. uh, Your your teeth are like the rams, you know. Things like that. Um, uh, It's it's more beautiful in the Hebrew, really. Uh, But listen, listen to. I appreciate the sympathy laugh. Um, uh, Listen to Song of Solomon chapter one, verse fifteen. And 16, he says, this is the bride speaking to her groom. She says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then verse 16, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. That's the groom speaking back to the bride. Well, we could go to other places in Song of Solomon, but I think what we see here is we see this physical attraction, this physical intimacy, and that physical attraction serves the need for physical intimacy. But if we were to keep reading in Song of Solomon, there's a refrain that is used several times. And it's, do not awaken love until it's time. This physical intimacy that we see in Song of Solomon, that we we see through the scriptures, this is an intimacy. This is sex reserved for a covenant relationship, a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. And this this physical intimacy, this is God's gift to us. It's God's gift, and he's, he's blessing us, but he's also teaching us. Actually, I think that this is one place that uh, the church as a whole, not just our church, but church as a whole, that we have to do better at in discipleship. And with our, our middle school and high school students, that, that when we talk about sex, that we always talk about it as something dangerous. We always talk about it as something not to do. We always talk about it, and, and we talk about it, we tell half the truth, but the rest of the truth is that sex is a good gift from God, given to us to be enjoyed in the marriage relationship, in the covenant relationship. So we see this physical intimacy, but then there's a second kind of intimacy, maybe one that's less obvious, but it's emotional intimacy. Intimacy. We keep looking, Song of Solomon chapter four, uh, verse nine says this, you have captivated my heart. This is the groom speaking. You have captivated my heart, uh, my sister, my bride. Now in the ancient Near East, uh, sister was a pet name. He says, You've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. So he's talking about here emotional intimacy. This is the groom speaking to the bride, and he goes to the heart. He says, you've captivated my heart. The heart is the seat of emotion. It's the the source of thinking and feeling and choosing and action. Now, when we think about adultery, like oftentimes we think about physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy is just as dangerous. See, Satan would love for us to believe that adultery is only or merely physical. But adultery is often emotional before it is ever physical. The the Westminster Larger Catechism says this, that this command, this seventh commandment, that what it's commanding is chastity not only in body, but also in mind, affection, and words. And so maybe, maybe even this morning you're sitting here and you're thinking like, Someone needs to hear this, but I don't need to hear this because I'm faithful. Here's here's just a warning that I would give to you, is that Satan loves it when we think we're not in danger. It's a false sense of security, right? Whenever we think everything's okay, we put our defenses down, we put our blinders down, and that's often where Satan hits, now, that doesn't mean that you should walk around not trusting yourself or this or that, but what it means is that you should be on guard. In fact, this is why we'll see in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul doesn't say to avoid sexual immorality. He, he doesn't say to, re, to try not to do it. He says flee, to run from it. And so maybe you're not guilty of violating that marriage bond, that marriage covenant when it comes to physical intimacy, but I wonder... Uh, emotional intimacy. Maybe you haven't violated it, but, but could you need to pay attention to the, the flirting and joking around at work or maybe the goofy text messages sent back and forth or, or maybe who you're friends with and who you talk to on social media. It might sound weird. Why, why would I bring up social media? There's a study done just a few years ago Uh, that studied uh, divorce causes throughout the United States, and they believe it's actually higher than this now, but at that time, one in seven divorces said social media played a role in the dissolution of their marriage. That same study said that there was a a 20, uh, there's a correlation, they can show a tie, between a 20% increase in Facebook enrollment being tied to a 4% increase in the divorce rate. The same study was asking people how do, they, how do they feel if they could rate their satisfaction or their happiness in their marriage. And it found that people who do not use social media were 11% happier in their marriage than those who do. I don't think we necessarily view social media as the danger that it really is. Uh, now we think about it for maybe our kids and our grandkids right? That they don't need to be on whatever the the social media app of the day is. And I think it's a right inclination. I don't think they should be. And I think that social media can be redemptive, right? It can be used for good reasons. At the church, we use social media. But if we're not careful, what happens is instead of us using social media, Satan uses social media in our lives, so what this means is that we have to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves is the way that Jesus talks about it. It means husbands and wives, you. I think it's wise, wisdom demands that you share passwords, that there be no secrets, there be nothing hidden because I promise you this, that your marriage is worth more than that moment. Your marriage is worth more than than that glance. Your marriage is worth more than whatever Satan would lead you to believe. See, this is, there's no greater blessing than being loved by another person who knows you fully and accepts you completely because that's how the Lord knows us, right? He knows us fully. He accepts us completely. This is a gift and a grace given to us by our God. However, if we're not careful, what happens is we can take this good gift of intimacy and we can turn it into a bad God. The reason adultery happens is because we believe that that person or that image or that video or that thing can give us what our husband or our wife cannot. That thing can satisfy us in ways that our God cannot. And so there's a warning here for us that we wouldn't turn the gift of intimacy into a God. We've got to understand God's gift of marriage and his gift of intimacy. And then finally, we understand God's gift of grace. We've talked a lot about how we break the seventh commandment. But we haven't said anything about what do we do, how do we respond when we do break the commandment. John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols. There's no shortage of us making idols in our hearts, not that we're forming them, but uh, idols can be things, can be good gifts that we turn into those idols. And so what that means is that we're really good at turning God's good gifts into bad little gods. Now, remember the context of the Ten Commandments. You, You can't understand the Ten Commandments if you don't understand the context that they were given. God did not give Israel the Ten Commandments in Egypt and say, if you do this, then I'll deliver you. Right, if you keep these commandments, if you're good enough, then I'll take you out. If you, you get enough points or enough gold stars, then I'll take you. Now, you remember what he does? He delivers Israel from Egypt. He delivers them from Pharaoh. He, he brings them through the danger. And then when they get to the other side of the danger, do you, do you remember what God says? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who delivered you from slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. See, the the Ten Commandments are predicated on grace. So what the Ten Commandments are, the Ten Commandments are God rescuing his people and then teaching his people, showing his people, how is it that rescued people live? So what we have to remember is that there's a purpose to these commands. These commands are to show us how we are to live but they're also to show us that we cannot meet God's standard. That's the purpose of the law. Galatians 3.24, Paul says that the law was a tutor, a guardian, a schoolmaster pointing us to Jesus. So what God was doing in the law is he's painting this picture that we cannot be good enough. He's painting this picture that we need a savior and he's reminding his people that a savior is going to come. And now what he does for us is he reminds us that the savior has come. Right, that the Savior is here. Now, maybe you don't feel like an adulterer. Maybe you say, even I have a healthy marriage. Right? I've never been tempted to violate that marriage covenant. I've never done anything physical. Uh, I've never done anything emotional. I don't even have a Facebook page, right? Uh, I am safe. Ed Clowney writing on this verse, he says, in each of the Ten Commandments, Jesus does not set aside the law, but he deepens its authority and scope. And so what we see Jesus do with this command is he moves it beyond just the physical act. Look at Matthew five 27. We, we've got it on the screen for you. Jesus says, you've heard, he's speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her and his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus quotes the second commandment and he deepens its authority, he he deepens its scope. See, understand this, the problem with adultery is not physical, it is spiritual. So if you have ever looked at someone with lustful intent, according to Jesus, you're an adulterer according to jesus you're guilty you're guilty of adultery you understand this that for jesus the problem is not simply or merely the act the problem is the heart the reason we commit adultery is because of our sinful hearts that lead us astray see your heart commits adultery before your body ever does Ultimately, that's really what we know sin to be, right? We've already said this. It's spiritual adultery. So we're guilty. So what do we do when we sin? How, how do we enjoy God's gift of grace? Because Jesus, there, he paints a pretty bleak picture. Well, uh, look at First Corinthians chapter 6. We've got on the screen here in verses 9 and 10, we read this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, remember this. Remember the context here. Paul's writing to, he's speaking to a group of believers. He's speaking to people that he's called saints. That's the way he started the letter. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now think about that list that he's just run through. Right? He's listed basically every sexual sin, every category that we might have. This is not just them, it's drunkards, swindlers, any of it. But look at how he ends it here in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. Now I've got to believe that he doesn't give that very precise list that very specific list on accident he gives that list because he knows that sitting in the Corinthian church are people guilty of all of those things but look at how he ends he says but such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God that's good news See, you may still be tempted to sin. These Corinthians were certainly still tempted to sin. But notice where their identity is. Notice where Paul places their identity. He doesn't say that your identity is in your sin. He doesn't say your identity is that you're an adulterer or that you are a swindler or any of that. He says your your identity is in Jesus. He doesn't say such are some of you. No, what he say? He says, such were some of you. But something has changed that you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, our identity is not in our sin. Here's the thing, our identity is in our Savior. Right? That he's the one who has justified us. And so we overcome sexual sin. Maybe you are tempted. There is something serious about sexual sin. Right, the, the scriptures recognize, but this is true for any other sin, that you overcome sin, whether it be a sexual sin or something else, you overcome it by remembering your identity. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul says flee sexual immorality. But the way that you flee sexual immorality is not in your own strength. It's not in your own power. The way that you stop being a liar or the way that you stop being prideful or arrogant or whatever that sin may be that the way the author of Hebrews says clings so closely is not by running away in your own power, but by trusting in the power of the spirit at work in you. In fact, we we don't have this on the screen, but if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 6, you would find a little bit later on in that passage where Paul says, just as the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the grave, He's going to raise you too. So what that means... Is it the spirit of God that rose Jesus from the grave? Is it work in you to defeat that sin which clings so closely? Here's something I think that we need to remember when we think about fighting sin. God wants to defeat that sin in you, right? That you're not fighting alone. You're not fighting in your own power. You're not fighting in your own strength. Instead, what, what you do to defeat sin is you say, God, I understand that I cannot do this in my own power. I cannot do this in my own strength. God, I need you. I need your power and your strength. I need, God, I need you to give me power to flee sexual immorality. See, for, for some people, this might mean that you need to quit your job. It, it might mean that you need to throw away your computer. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? He said, it's better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell with both. And so we've got to take serious strides to take this commandment seriously. And the only way we can take those serious strides is through the power of Christ at work in us. Right? We, the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, because that's what he does. He makes us, he makes you, he makes me holy. See, we, we don't, we fight sin. We fight it from a place of victory. We fight it knowing that our victory has already been won and because of that, our identity is not in this thing. We fight it knowing and trusting that he who began a good work in you will finish it. That he who called you is able. That's what we need. See, we're good at turning good gifts into bad gods. And so as we think about this seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. I think there's two exhortations for us. One is this, is to value your marriage and fight for it. What this command is about is it's about protecting and valuing marriage. I can promise you this. Your marriage is worth the fight. Your marriage is worth the fight. You might think that there's no coming back, that my marriage is dead. Aren't you glad that God loves to bring the dead to life? Right? That's when the Lord does his best work. So value your marriage and fight for your marriage. And then the second thing is this, fight sin. John Owen, he was a Puritan pastor, he said this, he said, either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin in general is not to be played with. And sexual immorality is to be run from. It's to be fled from. And so you've got to fight against sin, but you fight understanding that, It's the spirit of God at work in you, fighting on your behalf. And it's, he's the one that is empowering you to say no to temptation. He's the one that's empowering you to resist the urge. He's the one that is teaching you and showing you and reminding you that Jesus is better than whatever that sin might offer. That Jesus is always better. And I think for some of us, maybe we need to learn that today. Or maybe we need to be reminded of that today, that Jesus is always better. And so some of us, maybe you're struggling with some kind of sexual immorality. Maybe you're struggling with some other sin. And the reason that we sin is because we like it. The reason that we sin is because it makes us feel good in the moment. The reason that we sin is because we don't think it's that bad. We believe the lie. The reason we sin is because we believe that that sin is going to satisfy us in ways that Jesus can't. But here's my promise to you. Jesus is always better. Jesus is always better. And maybe you need to know that and experience that for the first time. Maybe you need to experience the radical grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning for the first time you're you're feeling the weight of your sin. Sin is what separates you and I from God. Sin creates this gulf that we can't bridge on our own. We can't swim on our own. We can't get over on our own. But the good news is that we don't have to. The good news is is that Jesus has closed the gulf for us. He's bridged the separation. And how did he bridge the separation? He went to the cross. And on the cross, he became our sin. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath for your sin and for my sin. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus was buried and that three days later he rose again. And the reason the resurrection is so important is because when he rose again, he showed that he had defeated sin, that he had defeated death, that he had won the victory, and now that victory is available for anyone and everyone who will call on the name of the Lord. And so maybe this morning you need to call on the name of the Lord. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and as we sing our next steps team will be right down front. I would love to pray with you about whatever it may be. Maybe say, hey, I need someone to pray for my marriage. Maybe you need someone to just pray that you would value Jesus as better. Or maybe say, hey, I need to trust Jesus today. Whatever decision it is that you need to make, we're ready. We'd love to pray with you, walk with you, talk with you. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, thank you for how good you are. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to see and you would help us to know and you would help us to experience that Jesus is better. Father, sink that good news down deep into our hearts. Father, pray this morning for marriages that are in trouble. Marriages that seem broken beyond repair. God, we know you can fix it. And so, Father, I pray that you'd give that husband and that wife hope. I pray that you would give them joy. And I pray you'd give them grace. And Father, I pray for all of us that you would help us to fight against our sin. Father, that we would heed the words of John Owen. That either we would be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And so, Father, help us to wage war against our sin. Knowing the battle's already won. That we've been washed, we've been sanctified, and we've been justified. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.